The Pilot, Part 1, Careers of Danger and Daring, by Cleveland Moffat. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Careers of Danger and Daring, The Pilot, Part 1. Some stirring tales about the sea heard at the Pilot's Club. Of all the clubs in New York, I know none where a man who values the real things of life may spend a pleasanter hour than at the Pilots' Club, far down on the lower waterfront, looking out of lofty windows in one of those great structures that make the city, seen from the bay, place of wonderful fairy towers. Here on the walls are pictures that call up thrilling scenes, as this painting of Pilot Boat Number 11, they call her the Phantom, rescuing passengers from the Oregon, helpless in the great storm of 1886, 60 miles beyond Sandy Hook. We shall find men sitting around these rooms smoking and reading who can tell the story of the night in simple, rugged words that'll make the water devils dance before us. Look at them. These are the pilots of New York, greatest seaport in the world with its tidy annuals total of 20-odd millions in tonnage entering and cleared against 15 millions for London. These are the boys, some of them nearing 70, who bring the mighty liners in and take them out, who fight through any sea at a vessel's blue light bidding and climbs her fortress sides by a slamming whiplash ladder that shames the flying trapeze. And this in trim derby hat, sometimes called a topper, with gloves and smart necktie and some New York heralds tucked away in his coat-tail pocket. Look at them. These are the boys who stay out when every other floating thing comes in, who face an arctic rigor when masts are barrel-big with ice and ropes like trees, and when climbing to a steamer's deck is like skating up an iceberg. These are the boys who know, through fog and darkness, the call of the whistling buoy that signs at the mouth of Gedney's and can say good morning to every bobbing juniper spar that marks the long ship lane, red lights on the starboard boys as you come in, white lights on the port boys, who know the way even when the glass and iron lamp frames are all but sunk with ice, west, northwest, and a quarter west for a mile and a half, till the beacon lights of Wackhack and Point Comfort line out straight on the Jersey shore, then west by south until Sandy Hook Light lines up with Old South Beacon, then a short way northwest by west and a quarter west until the Conover Beacon lines up with Chapel Hill, and so on, straight to the Narrows. These are the boys who know every rock and shoal in this most treacherous bay with its 13 lighthouses, its two lightships, and its 80 danger spots marked by nun boys, bell boys, electric light boys, whistling boys, all familiar to them as their own homes. Great boys they are for storytelling, these pilots, and by the hour I have listened to their memories of the sea. Two things made deep impression on me so do we of less heroic lives take note of weakness in the strong. One, that many pilots can't swim, the same is true of deep-sea divers, and the other, that pilots, even after years at sea, may be victims of seasickness like any novice. Pilot Breed, for instance, as trusty a man as stands at a liner's wheel, assured me that every time he goes out for duty, he goes out for torture, too. And he does his duty, and he bears the torture, so that, after all, we must count this rather strength than weakness. How can you do your work, I asked, if you're in such distress? Because I have to, he answered. 
with a wistful smile you know sailors are often seasick but they go aloft just the same and work because they have to you could do it yourself if you had to and yet he added eyes half shutting i've many a time been so bad when we've tossed and tossed for days and nights on the watch for vessels that i've come pretty near to dropping quietly overboard and ending it this he said without any special emphasis yet one could see that it was true why don't you give up the life i suggested perhaps i would he said if i could do as well at anything else besides then came the queerest reason his father it seems a pilot before him had suffered from seasickness for thirty-seven years and then for thirty years more had been quite free from it now said breed i've been a pilot for twenty-two years so i figure if i stick to it for fifteen years more i may be like my father after that and have no more trouble think of that for a scheme of life presently another pilot joined us and set forth a remarkable experience i was taking the steamer lawn once he said through a heavy fog and the captain and i were both on the bridge anxious to locate the lightship you know how she lies eight miles off the hook and gives incoming vessels their first bearings for the channel of course we didn't expect to see her light you couldn't see anything in such weather but we listened for her foghorn how we did listen and presently we heard it you get accustomed to judging distances over water by sound and i put that light vessel at five miles away or thereabouts and i wasn't far wrong well we headed straight for it and heard the foghorn all the time for about a mile then it suddenly stopped hello said i what's up confound those light ship people growled the captain i'll make a complaint against them for stopping their horn wait a little said i and kept listening listening for the horn to blow again and all the time we were running nearer to the shoal pretty soon we slowed down and went on a couple of miles then another mile it seemed as if we must have reached the light ship and the captain was in a state of mind then suddenly the foghorn sounded again not four lengths away sir and the queer thing is it had been sounding the whole blame time we got positive proof of it afterwards only we hadn't heard it the explanation was that we had passed through two sound zones that's what the scientific people call them and i can tell you those sound zones make considerable trouble for pilots to this perplexing statement the others nodded in grave assent and breed capped the tale with a sound zone story of his own it was just off quarantine and he was turning a liner to bring her up to dock when another liner came along also running in breed gave the signal three times for the other liner to port her helm and she signaled back three times for him to port his by good luck each vessel did the right thing and they passed safely but neither pilot heard the whistle of the other and yet each made angry complaints that the other had failed to whistle yet witnesses testified that both had whistled and each one swore that he had the truth was according to the gentleman who explained acoustic puzzles that these two steamers happened to be placed there down the bay like two people in a whispering galley who cannot hear each other where they are but would hear plainly if they moved further apart or drew closer together so as to be in the foci of the sound thus it was that the distant vessel heard both sets of whistles although there was a nearer region where these were inaudible investigation has shown that these sound zones frequently establish themselves at sea they vary in extent with wind and tide so that the sounds of horns or bells may be heard for a mile or two and then become inaudible for say two miles and then become audible again almost as plainly as at first for several miles more the theory is that the sound waves somehow go skipping over the sea like a flat pebble over a mill pond in long jumps 
and that a vessel under the highest part of one of these jumps is out of the sound influence, but will come into it again by going ahead a certain distance or by going back a certain distance. Whether this explanation be true or not, the facts are abundantly vouched for and believed to explain various collisions and wrecks that have long been looked upon as mysteries. There's lots of queer things about our business, reflected the old pilot. Now you take steamers. They're just as different as people. Each one has her own way, and most likely her own particular kind of crankiness. They talk about twin steamers, but there's no such thing. You can have them both made at the same yard, with every measurement alike, and they'll be as different as, say, two violins. Why, I never saw a craft that had sailed the same on both tacks. They're always harder on one than the other. And as for compasses, well, I don't suppose there's ever two that came into this port with needles pointing just the same way. They all lean a shade one way or the other, same as watches. Lean a shade, put another man. I've known him to lean a whole lot. I've known a steamer's compass to point plumb northeast instead of north. And that time we nearly went into the rocks by it. We were coming along past Fire Island, and the night was pretty thick. I felt something was queer and wouldn't go below, although the captain had wanted me to. I kept looking up, looking up, searching for the North Star, and pretty soon I made it out, or, or thought I did, through a rift in the blackness. Hold on, I said to the captain, something's the matter with your compass. There's the North Star ahead of us, and ought to be abaft to the bridge. North Star nothing, said the captain. You're tired, man. You need a rest. Now you just turn in for an hour, and I'll run her. You'll run her right into the rock, said I, inside of fifteen minutes, unless you pull her out of here. I tell you, that compass is crazy. Well, sir, he began to get scared when he saw me so positive, and a little later he pulled her out, just in time, too, for we were right on the breakers of Long Island, thanks to that lying compass. I've heard it's the magnetic sands at Shinnecock, that devil's compasses. You know, there's acres and acres of it along there. This led to a discussion of magnetic sand, and it was edifying to see how well informed these pilots are in the latest advances of science. They set forth, for example, the clear advantage of literally pouring oil upon furious waters, and were all agreed that the foam of a spent wave spreading around a lifeboat will often protect her against a succeeding wave. The foam seems to act like oil in preventing a driving wind from tossing up the surface, getting a hold on it, one might say. Take it all together, I said. Do you men regard a pilot's life as very dangerous? It was Breed who answered. Taking it all together, said he, I regard a pilot's life as about the most dangerous going. Here's a little thing to show you how fast they go, these lives of pilots. When I was received as apprentice, there was 18 other apprentices ahead of me, and the only way we could get to be pilots was through somebody dropping out, for there were never more than just so many licenses issued. Well, when I had been an apprentice for three years, the whole 18 had been received as pilots, there were seven vacancies besides. That makes 25 dead pilots in three years, and most of them killed. Why, in the blizzard of 1888 alone, ten of our boats were wrecked. At this there was solemn shaking of heads, and stories of the taking off of this or that gallant fellow. It was Van Pelt, one of the strongest men in the service, a pilot from a family of pilots, killed by the stroke of a tow line, a big hawser that snapped across his body like a knife when the towing bits pulled out and cut him clean in two. Then there was the Norwegian apprentice, who was lost when they tried to send a small boat after Denny Reardon on the Massachusetts in the storm of November 1897. The Massachusetts was loaded with lions and tigers and elephants, the whole Barnum and Bailey show, and Reardon had just gotten her safely over the bar. There was a fierce sea on that night, and Reardon waited at the steamer's side, waited and peered out at the flare-up light, while the boys on the New York tried to do the launching trick. 
and in one of the upsets this norwegian chap was swept astern churned to death by the screw blade then there was harry devere a brooklyn pilot who happened to be out in the cyclone of eighteen ninety four miles from land in the little pilot schooner with its jaunty seventeen on the canvas there they were riding out the storm as pilot boats do facing it not running it when up loomed a big west indian fruiter burning blue light forward which meant that he was in sore need of a man who knew the dangers of these parts the old ocean was killing mad that night air and water straining in a death struggle already four pilots had been carried off by liners carried on to europe because there was no human way of putting them off to start for that vessel now was madness and every man in the pilot crew knew it and so did devere but he started just the same and he said he would try and he did tried through a cyclone that was sweeping a whole heaven of snow down upon the bellowing sea as if to smother its fury down into this they went three of them and somehow by a miracle of skill got the yawl under the vessel's lee then smash they were hurled against the iron side and devere sprang for the rope ladder a poor fluttering thing he caught it held fast and the next moment he was torn away by a great wave that cast him back into the waste of waters and so he perished you ought to hear him tell these stories on the whole it seemed clear that there's danger enough in this calling for the most extravagant taste and yet the chief danger is not this boarding of vessels in storms nor yet the dancing out of tempests in cockle-shell craft where the steamer would scurry to shelter neither of these but the everlasting peril of being run down that's the danger to break men's nerves for always night and day the pilot boats must lie in the swift track of the liners right in the track else they'll pass unseen it must be known that this is a narrow track a funnel for ships of the world which pass ceaselessly ceaselessly converging from all ports diverging to all ports in storm in fog in darkness and there the pilot boats must lie flying their blue square flags by day burning their flare-up lights every fifteen minutes by night waiting waiting in just such strained suspense as a man would before the rush of a silent locomotive sure to kill him if he doesn't see it before the rush of many silent locomotives which come while he sleeps while he eats and perhaps while he prays and constantly in the pilot records is this laconic entry number eight run over and sunk all hands lost number eleven run over and sunk one man saved the rest lost pilot boat columbia cut down by a liner ten men lost no chance for heroic struggle here no death with dramatic setting and columns in the paper but a stupid blundering execution while men rest helplessly on their weary bunks lulled by the surging sea run over and sunk End of part one, The Pilot, read by Jerry Becker.